If you have a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6 are a way to see God's Word. Now, I need to clear up something from last week. Uh, go ahead and put that picture back on the screen. Uh, last week, I said that um, none of those are with us today. I failed in saying, I didn't say it correctly. Uh, Irene, come over here. Irene came up to me at the end of the gathering last week and said, I ain't dead yet. <laughs> Irene is, can you tell us which one you think that is of you? The woman with the black Pillsbury hat. The, about the black hat? Oh, stand in front of the lady with the black hat on. Okay. Six years old in this picture. Now, let me tell you, the story doesn't end there. Um, she's been playing organ, piano, now keyboard for 68 years in our church. 68 years. She doesn't look a day over 30, but she's 80 this year. And so it's pretty amazing to see the longevity of what God has done in and through Miss Irene. And I'm sorry I, anyway, I'm sorry for what I did last week. You forgive me? Okay, thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you. All right, we do thank the Lord for Miss Irene. And <clears throat> 68 years. That's older than a lot of us in this room. Good night. Okay, let's move on. Okay. Uh, I hope you're able to be here some of the week this past week. We had a great week here at the church. On Thursday night, we had an MMO graduation. Uh, it's such a privilege to be able to see, again, how God's entrusted us to impact the lives of young families. And we saw all those preschoolers graduate. My, my grandson, the last one that I think is going through the program, uh, came up to me. He said, are you coming to my congratulations? And normally, I think that means in his mind, what gift are you bringing when, I, when you come? You know, but anyway. And then on Friday night, uh, uh, Lydia Earls, who's Dia Viola, if you happen to catch her on the radio, uh, she did an amazing job. Many of you remember she used to sing on our praise team. Uh, her voice, I mean, I, I mean, she did a great job when she was here. I didn't even hardly recognize her the other night. You're going to be hearing more and more from her over the years. And, uh, of course, Will, her husband, they serve at the church there around Nashville. And uh, it, was a, it was a great night here, Friday night. And so uh, it's just been a lot of great things going on around here at the church. And I appreciate those of you who are able to be a part of that. Well, we're continuing the series. Today will be the end of it. Don't clap. It'll hurt my feelings. Financial freedom is what we're looking at today. And let me give you the definition of freedom. Political or national independence. I want you to think about that. That's kind of what we're celebrating today. Those who went before us, who paved the way for that particular type of freedom. And we're able to enjoy ourselves here today, free and clear of any threat. And then, de definition of freedom goes on. Exemption from external control or some type of interference. The power to determine action without restraint. And, of course, personal liberty as opposed to bondage. Look at the introduction there on your outline. The Christian life should be identified as a life of giving. However, this is not the case for many. For many, it is because they're in financial bondage and do not understand the role, of finance, the role finances play in their spiritual lives. Now, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus clearly outlined what it means to live kingdom principles, covering almost every area of life, including 
the area of finances. If you were to go and look at the Sermon on the Mount, and for some of you, maybe you don't know where that is, it's found in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. Uh, most important sermon ever preached, I'm convinced of that. What you'll find is Jesus is coming on the scene. He, his public ministry is starting to really get going. He preaches the Sermon on the Mount, and basically he's laying out the kingdom principles of what it's like to live the way God desires us to live here uh, on this earth. And I'm going to tell you, he covers every area of life, including the one we're going to look at today. Now, many sitting here this morning, you know about financial bondage. Some of you have been there before. Some of you are currently there. But let me say this. I believe the goal of every family, of every person sitting here this morning, your goal should be to pursue financial freedom. Now, let me tell you why. Last week, I talked about financial potential. But I primarily came at it from the point of view of what our potential as a church has done and what we could possibly do in the future if we all live up to our financial potential. Now, what stands in the way of that is financial bondage. I remember many years ago, I was, uh, we were a young married couple, Tina and I. We were doing our best to make it our way through life and trying to make a family. And, and I'll be honest with you, we were in financial bondage. Any type of bondage you can be in debt, through credit, or whatever, we were there. We, we fully committed to all those categories of bondage. And I'm here to tell you, it led to a lot of problems in our marriage, led a lot of problems for us uh, as individuals, led to a lot of problems because we, I hear, I'm convinced of this now to look back on it, we were not living in the realm that God called us to live. You see, the nature of being a believer in Christ, the nature is to give. And when you're not acting in that nature, you're not going to feel good about things. And so basically what, what I want to say this morning is this, get to the point where there is financial freedom in your life to the point where you can move in such a way that when God lays something on your heart, you can respond to that need. Now, let me tell you, I've lived both worlds. I've lived in financial bondage, and I'm currently living in a financial freedom. And God did, did a radical transformation in our family's life some years ago. And I'm here to tell you, the financial freedom path is much better. Now, some of you are sitting here today, and here's what you're th saying. Well, I'm glad it worked out for you. <laughs> and I get that. I didn't think there was any hope. I'll be honest with you. I thought that was the way we were going to have to live the rest of our lives. And then all of a sudden, I got in the path of someone who helped me. I got in the path of engaging in God's Word, trying to find out what His Word says about finances. And as a result, there was transformation that came into our family's life. And now we're living. We're living in a current situation in which we can do what we believe God's called us to do. And so I want, I'm praying that for each and every one of you. So financial freedom, really when you think about it, is the freedom to give. The freedom to financially respond to those things that matter to God. To get there, it requires, as I said, a transformation in the area of finances to live out the kingdom principles Jesus taught. Oswald Chambers, many of you have read his devotion, uh, devotional. Here's what he says. The Sermon on the Mount is not some unattainable goal. 
It is a statement of what will happen in a person when Jesus Christ has changed their nature by putting his own nature in them. That is a very profound statement about the Sermon on the Mount. It is. It's not an unattainable goal. It's one of those things where basically Jesus Christ said, here's the kingdom principles. If you want the best path going forward, if you want that abundant life, if you want to have that fulfilling life, you follow this path, and it will lead you there. Matter of fact, Jesus said what? He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He summed it up. He said he's the embodiment, but he didn't just keep it to himself. He showed us. He taught us. He was the very example of how we should be identified as those who live in the kingdom of God and how we live. And in that, our nature should be one of giving. So what I want us to do is look at Matthew chapter 6 today, and I want us to look into this, this uh, section of the Sermon on the Mount. And the first thing we can take from it is a contrast, a contrast about two kinds of riches. There's earthly riches, and they are not the best investment. How many of you have, uh, how many of you have at some point thought, I think I found the best investment? Only for it just a matter of time, and it just turns. How many of you have ever been there? You thought you had it, and it just kind of went out from under you. Or you went out, and you purchased something, and you thought, man, this is the investment. This is the investment. And it really didn't, it didn't come out the way you thought it was going to come out. The things of this world are never meant, number one, to satisfy. But number two, they're never meant to reach the inner longings of our hearts. There's nothing here that can do it like an eternal perspective and understanding our eternal value in Jesus Christ. And so basically, here's what we need to know. Look at verse 19 of Matthew chapter 6. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Now, let me just say this. The, he, what he's saying here, he's not saying you shouldn't have things. He's not saying that. The, the, if you look at the intent of how this statement is, is, is laid out, he's not telling us to sleep under a bridge and give everything we have to all these different things. No, he's saying don't let the pursuit of your life be primarily and, and, and only towards earthly things because it, it's not going to satisfy. It's not going to get you where you think it's going to get you. And you can't count on those things. And he's very good at that, at saying that. But I want us to look at some of the, uh, the, the, the things that we can see. Why is it easier to desire earthly treasures over heavenly treasures? I want you to think about that. We're commanded to pursue heavenly, eternal, or heavenly treasures. But we settle for earthly treasures, don't we? We do, don't we? Why is it so easy to do that? Well, let's think about it. Some of it's obvious. Well, they can be seen and can be handled. They are sought by most people. And let's face it, we want what most people have. They are, to varying degrees, necessities for life. There are some things that are needed, and, and, and they, they are worth pursuing, but they, it can't be the ultimate in our life. And then... They are present with us now and can be possessed right now. So right now, we can set up a little mini kingdom unto us. Think about that. He's saying, don't let it become that. Don't let that become your driving ambition. Don't let that become your pursuit in life 
to create the kingdom of us. <laughs> but he, he's, very, he's saying that. He says it's not going to be the best investment. It won't pan out the way you think it will. Next, earthly riches are corruptible. Verse 19 again. He says, where moth and rust destroy. Now, he's talking about in a very practical, practical way that those things that we accumulate, they go through a series of decomposition. How many of you know what I'm talking about? That brand new car. Love it when you drive it off the lot, right? The new car smell. I mean, think about it. Even when the new car smell is gone, what do we do? We go and we find a new car smell like incense and put it back in there, don't we? We're intent on that. And the things that we got must understand is that everything in this world decomposes, ages, decays. It eventually dies. Now, here's what I've heard some people say. Not some people say, actually experts say. That part of the aging process, how many, of you, how many of you are part of the aging process? Okay, we all are. That in the aging process, as we get older, psychologists have discovered that as we get older, our pursuit of something newer helps alleviate the fact that we're getting older. This sounds like it comes straight from Satan, doesn't it? I mean, really, that we think we can, we can settle those feelings down, that we think we can do that if we just have newer. And that's a trap that many people fall into. The fact is, they are corruptible. Everything has a seed of corruption within it that's a part of this world. There's a seed that's there. But not only is it corruptible, it can corrupt. You see what I'm saying? That's what he's telling us. Now, lastly, earthly riches are also not secure. Verse, six, uh, verse 19 again. And where thieves break in and steal. Earthly riches can be lost. They do not last. They can be stolen. And they can waste away. They're not secure. It's not here today. Continue to be here. Continue to be here. And it's, no, it, it, it's moving somewhere. And according to the economy of this world and what everything does, it began, begins to decompose. So, 1 Timothy 6-7 says this, For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. I've heard many preachers basically say this same statement, but you've never seen a U-Haul behind a hearse. You know, there's part of me that kind of wants to go do that one day. Go to Cecil Burton and say, hey, can we borrow one of your hearses? We'd like to just see what it would look like. Matter of fact, next time I preach on this, I'm going to go get a picture of that and show you how ridiculous that would actually look. But, but there, you, don't, you don't carry anything with you. So in verses 19 and 20, here's what Jesus is doing. He's contrasting earthly riches with heavenly riches. And basically, if you think about heavenly riches, outside of what he's bringing up here, what are some of those things? Well, becoming a true child of God is definitely a heavenly rich. <laughs> it's heavenly rich. Wouldn't you agree? Not only that, godly relationships. God brings those people in our lives. The forgiveness of sin. Godly wisdom. wisdom purpose and meaning to life. Life that is abundant. And not to mention, at the end of all this... There's going to be an enormous inheritance in and of itself throughout eternity. Think about that. Get your mind about, around that. 
That should blow your mind. So what are heavenly riches? Well, heavenly riches are the best investment. They're the best investment. Basically, it's the idea of, of sending it forward. Now, some of you are like, okay, where, where, where's this on the stock exchange? Or, or what do I need to buy into to make sure it goes there? Here's what you do. The best investments you can make in this life is to follow the heart of God. What matters to God and get on board with it? That's what it is. Whether it's missions, whether it's supporting the local church, whether it's helping someone out around or whatever it may look like. There's many people that I know, and, and this is really kind of amazing. I've heard many people give testimonies of how God blessed them through their giving. Uh, and, and it's amazing how people get creative in their giving. I, I, and some people, listen, the people that I know that do this are not necessarily the wealthy people. They just have a priority to know that as a believer in Jesus Christ, it should be by our nature that we give. And they find ways to live that out. And it brings satisfaction. And so we see that. So, so what does he say in verse 20? Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. How much true value is there in something that passes away or perishes? Think about it. What do you find yourself investing in most of the time? Many times, we're so caught up in pursuing the things and riches of this world that those things begin to define who we are. And that's not the way it should be. So, Luke chapter 12, verse 15. A person's life, a man's life, does not consist in the abundance of the things he or she possesses. It's not found there. Listen, when the Bible says Paul, there's a phrase that Paul uses over and over again in his epistles. And it's that phrase, in Christ. It's seen all through the book of Ephesians. And basically, you know what it means to be in Christ? It means your identity is in Christ. It's not in your wealth. It's not in your influence. It's not in your fame. It's in who? Christ. And so, therefore, every bit of our identification comes in and through Christ himself. And so it matters what God thinks about things. It matters about how God desires us to, to have a nature of giving in our lives. And we see that so clearly. Next, he uh, heavenly riches are incorruptible. He goes on in verse 20, he says, where neither moth nor rust destroy. When you're given to something that is eternal, it is eternal. When you give to something that's heavenly, it will outlast this world. Think about that. It doesn't decompose. That seed that you, play, that you put out there, the Bible says it won't return void. When you give the word of God, when you give towards those things and get the word of God out, when you do this thing, when you follow the heart of God, it's never a waste Never a waste. Did you know that the Bible talks about believers receiving crowns? How many of you know that? I, I believe that's just the tip of the iceberg. I, I believe there are those crowns, and the Bible lists there are several crowns that a believer can receive. I believe that's the tip of the iceberg. I think part of heaven and the celebration we're going to have in heaven is the fact that we're going to celebrate the fact in the moment, maybe when we lived on this earth, when God moved on our heart, and we obediently gave and did what he laid on our heart. I think that's going to be celebrated in heaven. And I believe, here I may be naive in this, or maybe I'm not, I believe we're going to see exactly what that accomplished. 
By giving that money, here's the thread of salvation that went through the earth, or went through the people who were there. By that gift, it accomplished this. By that gift, this happened. Now, again, I don't think it will be to uplift us in any way, because guess what? I think I read in the, in the scriptures also that those crowns, I don't think I'm going to be strutting around heaven with my crown. I think that kind of will look strange. Don't you? You know what the Bible says? Those crowns will be done. You know, it's, they will become an act of worship that we will place before God. It kind of makes you want to have a crown, doesn't it? Not so you can prance around uh, the, the streets of gold in a, in a crown, but that you can be a part of something that you're giving unto the Lord. Man, that would be a... Can you imagine the scene of what that's going to be like? First Peter Verse 1 says, or chapter 1 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again. That means he's rebirthed us. That means there's a new nature to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible. We are capable, because of what Christ has produced for us, because of the fact that he was resurrected from the dead, that we also will have a resurrection one day, that we will go from being corruptible to incorruptible. But not only that, we're going to receive things that are incorruptible. Now think about that. That's what he's saying here. An inheritance that's incorruptible, not defiled, and that does not fade away, that is reserved in heaven for whom? You, us. Again, does that not blow your mind? I, I don't know about you, but I think most of us would be satisfied that Christ's provision of the forgiveness of sins and what it gave us here on earth and the fact that we get to spend eternity with him, I think most of us here today would say, that's really, I mean, that's really all he needs to do for us. But it doesn't end there. He gives more. There's another whole level of giving to us this should blow our minds how many of you christmas how many of you when when you were younger you loved <laughs> you loved those gifts you, you you saw the gift you identified your gifts you shook your gift i mean you 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 knew whose was whose under the tree Matter of fact, when I went to my grandmother's, I would go look under the tree, and everybody had already been there. I bet I'd set all my gifts over here to the side. And then, of course, what do you got to do? You got to eat first, and then you got to clean up everything. Then you can get to this, right? Well, you got to wake up granddaddy because he's asleep watching the game normally. But anyway, but the point I'm trying to make here is you know the zeal and the excitement it was as a kid? And then you become an adult. You become an adult, and... Really, it, the food becomes more important. How many of you know that? <laughs> Doesn't it? And then we'll get around to the gifts. Now we, you know, but, but here's where I am. I love to give a gift and watch it opened. Now, I wish I could say all my grandchildren and children loved every gift I gave them. How many of you ever seen a kid open their, their gift and say, close, and just throw it across the room and move on to the next thing? I've had that happen, you know. <laughs> but but I'm, I'm, here's what I want you to understand. We, God, is a cheerful giver. The Bible tells us that. And he wants to give. 
And he enjoys when his children are given certain things. But he cannot violate the fact that you want to be blessed by doing something that's not in obedience, that's not in where he says he can bless. Sometimes we want him to give anyway, and sometimes in spite of ourselves, we've seen him do great things even through those things. But God wants to be a cheerful giver when it comes to us obediently living out what he desires, living the kingdom principles. And one day, because we live those kingdom principles, it's not just a walk into heaven and into into eternity. It's also things that will be bestowed upon us that I believe we'll be able to lay back at his feet. Heavenly riches are secure. Verse 20, where thieves do not break in and steal. No thing or person can take away what God gives. The bottom line, when it comes to riches, God desires that a person's heart be aligned with his own. So it's more than just giving the things. It, 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 I think this statement, look, look at verse 21 of Matthew 6. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That verse means this. What you are pursuing is where your passion will be. What you are pursuing is where your passion is going to be. If you're pursuing earthly riches, that's where your passion is going to be. If you're, if you're pursuing heavenly things, that's where your passion is going to be. And, and so it's, it's very clear what we read here in Scripture. Then he has a warning about two kinds of hearts. How many, of you really, how many of you know it really comes down to the heart? It really does. I think Jonathan preached this several weeks ago when he was talking about the Pharisees and how they would stand before the people and they'd give their offerings and you know, they wanted it to be seen and all this. And the widow comes. You remember the story? She comes and puts in her little mites. You know, and, and Jesus is looking there and he can see through in the hearts. And he says, she gave everything. She gave everything. You see, it doesn't matter who is actually rich or poor, who gives whatever. It's a matter of the heart. The heart is sized up in this. So what can we take from this? From a person's heart flows the direction of a person's life. So here's what we understand. A good heart is like a good eye. Verse 22. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good... Your body will be full of light. This is a good thing. Okay? We're not reading about darkness here. We're reading about light. It's interesting. The things that light is in, when you look at it in Scripture, what light is, Jesus said, I'm the light. When you look at truth, truth is light. Wisdom, light. Everything good is in the form or described as light. Light. And what does that bring? These things mean we're not deceived. So not only do we see a good good heart is like a good eye, not deceived, and it focuses on the heavenly. There's always a heavenly focus. But a bad heart is like a bad eye. Matthew chapter 6, verse 23. But if your eye is bad... Your whole body will be full of darkness. Do do you know what darkness really is? It's the void of light, right? That's what we learn. So so really darkness isn't anything in and of itself. It's just a void of light. 
So really what he's talking about here, you become void of God's ways and his wisdom. The best. If therefore the light that is in you, your inner person, your heart, your conscience, is darkness, how great is that darkness? He's basically saying this is a terrible place to be in life when you're in darkness. How many of you look at people out there who don't know the Lord and they're in darkness and you wonder how do they cope with the things of this world? How do they do it? And then sometimes you, you, I think for so many years here in America, we, we didn't really, we knew there was light. We knew that God is light. We knew his truth is light. We knew there was wisdom that came with light. We knew there was all these things. But how many of you have seen, and man, I hate to be negative here, but it's so obvious. How many of you have seen the darkness start to come in and settle in over our country? Look at what it's producing. I mean, we're seeing evil in the streets now. It used to be in the alleyways, in the closets. It's in the streets. It's being celebrated. It's, it, I look at things now, and I'm like, how, did, how do we come to this? Why? Because darkness moved in to the light. It's the void of good. The void of good always moves towards evil. Always. And that evil can rest upon us if we're not careful. And we can be just as deceived as those who are out there if we live in darkness. So we see everything's is attributed to this. So what are two things concerning the bad heart or the bad eyes? You're deceived and you focus on the earthly. What does it mean to focus on the earthly? It's, it's, it's literally, what it literally means in the context of what we're seeing, it means wiping clean the thought of eternity. And I don't know about you, but when I look at some of the people that I see today in their lifestyles, how they're living it, it's obvious they're not living with eternity in mind. It's obvious. We see that so clearly. Why is the eye mentioned when it comes to the heart? Many of you know this. The Bible even says this. The eye is the gate, the entranceway into the soul. Your soul is your heart and mind. What a person looks at or focuses on is what they think about. And what a person thinks about, they become and pursue. And that's the reason we got to understand the difference between the earthly and the heavenly. The focus of the eye then the focus of the eye, then the heart will determine if a person is earthly-minded or heavenly-minded. Everything rests there. But here's what you can carry back to the subject we're talking about. Earthly-mindedness can bring bondage, even financial bondage. Heavenly-mindedness can bring freedom, financial freedom. Next, to overcome financial bondage, we need to realize that there is a choice. And it's really about two kinds of masters. Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. Have you ever wondered why? Why is it that way? <laughs> because they're running in contrast of one another. And, and so what's happening is, if you're moving in this way, it's pulling against this way. <laughs> 
So you're in constant turmoil. Now, I want to ask you this. How how many of you have ever backslidden before when it came to your faith? You ever done that? How many of you cannot imagine a more miserable place to be than when you were there? You know why? Because you had those two natures pulling against one another. And you were given as much towards the nature that you shouldn't as maybe you were attempting to do with the other. When we, when we are in Christ, new nature, it runs against what the flesh is trying to produce, everything that's about this earth. And so basically he's saying you, you, you can't love both of them. They're running in opposite directions. They're going to conflict. They're going to cause inner turmoil. When I backslid into my life, a lot of inner turmoil. You know what? My wife even picks up on it. I'll start getting moody. Start getting mean. What'd you do that for? Sometimes the response is, you need to get right with Jesus. <laughs> and most of the time she's right. <laughs> There's an inner turmoil going on. Jesus warns that a choice has to be made. And, and look what he says. It really comes down to this. You cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon is money or possessions. So Jesus warns that a choice has to be made between two kinds of masters or two kinds of pursuits. One you will love and the other one you'll hate because it's rubbing against one for the other. One you'll cleave to, the other one you'll despise. A choice must be made. Pursue God, which is heavenly things, or the world where you have money or pursuit of things, the earthly things. So if your driving ambition is to keep up with the Joneses, and by the way, you know this, the Joneses are broke as much as anybody. They're extended in their credit, most of them. Sorry if your name's Jones and I've misrepresented you. I'm sorry about that. But, but, but really, you, sometimes you don't even know what you're looking at when you're trying to keep up with the neighbors. <laughs> And the point you the point you got to make is this is is eventually your pursuit must be around Christ. And we're going to look at what happens when that is the case in just a moment. He's going to be very clear about that. Now, serving money brings bondage. Serving or pursuing money or what money can buy brings bondage. Let me give you some symptoms of bondage that you may be caught up in and you're not aware of. Number 1, investment worries. Storing up. Uh, here's what's interesting. Our, our, um, our economy and, and many businesses, how many of you, uh, very few of you sit in this room probably get a pension from your company. You, you remember you used to work, you put so many years in, then the pension kicks in, and you're set. Now what do we have to do? It's in our own hands now, right? We, sometimes we've got to invest it, and then we put it in there. And I know men and people who watch the stock market every day might not get the devotion done that day, but we're going to read about the stock market, see where it's headed. I had one wife tell me one time, she said, I could always tell what the market was doing based on how my husband's attitude was. (laughs) And some of you are sitting here saying, I wish I had money to invest. I've been there too. Okay, so I'm not leaving you out either. But I'm just telling you, that's all you think about, your investment constantly on your mind. And by the way, some, you would think that if there's a lot sitting there, it would free you up. No, there's more at risk. You're even more tuned in. 
It's an endless cycle. Secondly, overdue bills, spending out. Not just storing up, but spending out. 80% of Christian families today either suffer from overspending or have suffered from it in the past. Next, get-rich-quick attitude. Now, I'm not going to ask you how many of you play the lottery or do the lottery. I'm not going to ask that. By the way, if you win, we will take the money. Just going to tell you. So. Some of you are offended by that. I have scriptural basis on this. <laughs> King David, when he built the temple, took stuff from the pagans to build it. So if you want to be aligned as a pagan, you want to give to the church, we'll take it. Okay? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Man, I can get all kinds of trouble talking like that. Can I? The quick, rich attitude is one that is very unhealthy. How many of you ever seen these things where people come into all this money and it literally ruins their life? You know why? Because an influx of money or something that is that strong, if, if the person is not centered correctly in Christ and their life is not lived towards something, it throws everything out of whack. And, and they make many times fools of themselves as a result. So, so that doesn't help either. But you know what some of us do? Some of us, the get rich, quick attitude can just be receiving a credit card with a new credit line of $10,000. Honey, we've hit the big time. I've seen it happen. Got to be careful. Symptoms of bondage, no gainful employment. I told you this a couple of weeks ago. Paul said this, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, for even when we were with you, uh, we used to give you this order, if anyone won't work, neither let him eat. Again, this is not referring to people that can't eat, or I'm sorry, who can't work. It's those that refuse to and expect others to float them along, I guess. Symptoms of bondage, covetousness. Set your goals and standards for buying based on conviction, not on what is on the basis of what others have or what the commercials think you need to have. Resentment is another. Thinking that God has not given you what you deserve. You look over there at Bob's house. Bob doesn't pull out on Sunday morning and go to church. Why does he seem to be more blessed than me? That's, that's not even really a, 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 a an argument, when you're talking about God, that's not really an argument, really. It's about each individual and how God. Here, here it is. The average American lives better than 90% of the rest of the world. Symptoms of bondage, money entanglements. Your money is tied up in things that really don't matter. How about this? Unmet needs. The Bible says, 1 Timothy chapter 5, but if anyone does not provide for his own, his own family, especially his household, he has denied the faith. He's not living according to the faith. And he is even worse than an unbeliever. Wow. I've literally seen men do this. I've seen men buy toys when the family's needs were still unmet. I've seen that happen. How about unmet church needs? Do you, do you realize that we're here together to make our attempt to build the kingdom? And the Bible says in Malachi, bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and try me in this, says the Lord. If I will not open up the windows of heaven. He's basically saying, bring these things in that they may be used mightily for the kingdom. Next, serving God will bring blessings. 
Not bondage, but blessings. And what are we talking about? All the necessities of life. Look at verse 25. Therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you put, up, put on. It is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more of value than they? How about this? Serving God brings blessings, freedom from anxiety. Look at verse 27. Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to a statue? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Verse 30, now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? I'll take care of you. Serving God brings blessings. Joy and contentment are some of those blessings. Verse 32, for after all these things the Gentiles seek, for you, your heavenly Father, know that you, what you need, that you need all these things. Really what you're seeing in the first part of this verse is a picture of unbelief. The Gentiles, the, the way it's used here is just the idea of unbelievers. They're, they're, they're not associated with Christ. They're not in Christ. So there's a picture of unbelief. But then he says a picture of trust is knowing that your heavenly father knows what your needs are. And as a result, we can rest with joy and contentment. And then lastly, abundant and eternal life. Verse 33, here it is. But another way of looking at that, instead or rather than, seek or pursue First, the kingdom of God and his righteousness, what God desires, how he, he's put these things forth, how he wants you to live, and all these things shall be added to you. He's basically saying, get a heavenly, eternal mindset. Pursue that. Go after that, and you'll see these things come together. That's what he's saying in these words. It came from the words of Jesus himself. So here's the application. The process of financial freedom is, number one, daily surrender to God every financial decision, no matter how large or small. You know what that's called? It's called lordship. Going before him. God, is this wise? Is, is this decision, am I, am I excluding the heavenly, the eternal by making this decision? Number two, accept God's wisdom in every decision. I'm just going to tell you, I think big purchases, I, think you need to, I definitely think you need to seek the heart of God in. And not only that, find godly wisdom. Find God, godly wisdom. Let other people speak into the process. Number three, give the minimum testimony to God of ownership. The Bible talks about it as first fruits. Many people call it a tithe. I'm going to tell you, there was a time in my life where I wasn't obedient in this area. How can, I be, how, can, how can I expect God to do what he says he's going to do if I'm not doing what he tells me to do? And, and, and I'll, I'll be honest with you, it, it was very difficult. And, and, and I, I couldn't see any way in the budget 
that was going to make this work. But you know what we did? We stepped out in faith. I had a pastor that confronted me about it. Didn't like him at the time, to be honest with you. <laughs> it was hard. But he challenged me. And here's what I told him. I said, right now, I'm having a hard time. My family's having a hard time. We're putting everything we got into what we can do. He said, you need to start somewhere. So we started giving 2%. Some of you are like, man, big spender to God there, aren't you? We get 2%. Within a couple months, we were up to four. Within a year, we were right there at the first fruits, what we called the tithe. And we did that. And I'm telling you, that act of obedience, was, it felt amazing. It was, felt amazing. I'm just going to tell you, it was great. Man, back when we had the offering plates coming around, I remember the first time we gave 10%. I, I, I told some of you this. I felt like standing up going, BAM! <laughs> <laughs> Give the minimum. Willingly seek to share with others, even if it requires a sacrifice to do, to do so. Sacrificial living. You see, what's interesting about all this is it's not asking you to do no more than what God did through Jesus, if you really think about it. So life is about our pursuits. And so here it is. What are you pursuing? So I want to close with this verse. Matthew chapter 6. But seek first the kingdom of God, his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Would you stand with me with your heads bowed and your eyes closed? Father, we just come to you right now. And we just thank you for your word. We thank you for the challenge of your word. We thank you for the Sermon on the Mount, Lord. It's so full and rich of those things that we need to be pursuing that bring a satisfying, fulfilling life. And Father, I just pray for everyone in this room, Lord, that, that we will, if, for those that are in some form of financial bondage, Lord, maybe it, it came about through sickness, maybe it was a job loss, whatever it was, Father, I just pray for them, Lord. I, I know that there are seasons in life where we have to pull together to help one another. And, and Lord, I have no doubt there's people in the room in that situation. And we just pray that you'll see them through that, Father. That, Lord, they can come out on the other side and be in the place you desire them to be. Father, I pray for the one that's here today and maybe uh, their journey similar to mine. They, they've been in the bondage and now they've found the freedom. And, and, Father, you've done such great things. You desire to do so much more in and through us, Father. Help us to realize that you are the one that allows us to make that eternal investment. That one day when we stand before you, that one day when we see all the different things that are going on there in heaven, Father, that I, Lord, there's going to be a celebration. And Father, I thank you that based on what I think I see in Scripture, I thank you that you've given me the ability, you've given me the insight and wisdom to know to lay up treasures that are heavenly. That at that moment, I'll have something to lay at your feet. Father, I thank you that you're not through with us yet. Continue. Father, if there's someone here today that doesn't know you as our Lord and Savior, the idea of seek ye first the kingdom of God has never even started for them, I pray today they'll come to know you as our Lord and Savior. Father, have your way in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. We're getting ready to sing a hymn of invitation. Uh, there'll be some counselors here at the front. Maybe you need to pray with someone. Maybe you need to get on the, there at the steps. Just walk by them and get the steps. Just do what God's calling you to do in these moments, would you? Would you sing with us?